You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. What's up, guys? Hey. I think this is the longest we've talked to each other before an intro ever. That's not <laughs> something that really should influence but people. But this is the 80th intro in a row in which you've been looking at your phone while we're doing it. Yeah. It helps get me uh, psyched up. Multitasking. Evan, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Sabrina Rubin Erdley, who is a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine. She uh, has written a lot of really fantastic long features over the last couple of years. Yeah. And she's really fun to talk to, and she had a lot of interesting things to say, actually. She did that uh, military rape story. Last she year, did. Yeah. She did a story about military rape. She did a story about the heirs to the Duke. Oh, man, fortune. that story. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, kids were living in filth. Indeed. Yeah, she talks about it. Uh, it's pretty interesting how she got it. Yeah, I, that that was uh, it was hard to read that one and not like think about that how those interviews must have gone. Yeah, uh, we got some sponsors this week. First one's PillPack. If you or someone you know is taking a lot of medication, PillPack's going to change their life. It's a pharmacy. They come to you, all your meds, your vitamins, pre-sorted into these little packets. Super easy. PillPack.com/slash/longform. Get the first month free. Uh, speaking of getting things for free. How'd you like to start a free newsletter? You can with Tiny Letter from MailChimp. It's simple, it's efficient, it's a way to get your message out. Okay, here's Evan and Sabrina. Hi, Sabrina. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Evan. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Doing very well. You're in New York, uh, up from, you live in Philadelphia? I do. And you've spent your whole career in Philadelphia, is that right? I have. I went to Philadelphia for college, and I just never left. You're now a Philadelphia native, or are you a Philadelphia native originally? No, I'm not. I'm actually actually a New York native, Uh but I am now now a Philadelphian, minus the cheesesteaks. No cheesesteaks? I don't go for that. No, no, not for me. That's surprising. Why is that? Have you seen a cheesesteak? I can't eat cheesesteaks because I have to eat a gluten-free diet myself, so I, for one, envy your ability to eat cheesesteaks, and I'm surprised that you're not taking advantage. Well, in in fact, I actually have my own dietary restrictions, which is that I am kosher. Uh, so the very sight of a cheesesteak is just like, <laughs> it just makes absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> it's just gross upon gross. Well, I'm sure there are other uh, aspects of Philadelphia that you must love since you have now spent a long time there. Yes, I love it there. Yeah. I love it there. It's, a, it's just an awesome place to live. 
it's walkable, it's manageable. It's like, I feel like I live in the center of everything. And like, where can a journalist really afford to do that? Yeah, that's one That's one aspect. I mean, we've had a number of people who sort of passed through Philadelphia Magazine at various times on the podcast, including Dan P. Lee, who had not the best experience, uh, and Stephen Roderick, who I think did have a, a very good experience there. So I know I kind of wanted to start asking you about that because it's come up a few times. And as far as I could tell, you started at Philadelphia Magazine directly out of college. Is that right? I did. I did. I actually started there even before I left college. I was an intern there. And I will say it, it is it is kind of funny. I mean, I mean, really, Philly Mag is the reason why I wound up settling in, in Philly. And it feels to me like no accident that there are so many like national writers who emerged from Philly Mag, especially for the like just for this protracted period of time. It just felt like this incubator of talent. And it's just, I don't know, it's turned out to be this amazing family. And so, like, for example, I was there at the same time as Steve Roderick, who actually came back well, came back a couple of times. And um, it's Dan Lee and I didn't overlap, and yet, you know, I was still around. And so, like, we still met and hung out. And, like, he's still, he's, like, part of the family. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So, like, you know, some people have, like, good experiences. Some people have less good experiences. But, like, we're all part of the same crew. Yeah. And it seems like even if you didn't have a great personal experience at uh, in like Dan's case, it did something for his writing. I mean, he he certainly wrote great pieces there and went on to now be writing great pieces. So there there's something about the DNA of the place that must uh, encourage a certain type of writing or a certain approach to it. What do you what, what do you think was is happens there or happened there? Well, I can only speak to my own experience. I mean, I'm I'm learning more and more that like everybody's experience was kind of different and you know sort of subjective, but. For me, I know that, I mean, I started there as an intern, you know, in college, and I was just kind of blown away by the talent that was all around me. And it it was so immediately apparent that um, it was an environment where people really cared about the work and about each other, and it just felt like a real team environment. And I didn't know much about the business of journalism at that point. I'd taken a couple of internships elsewhere at, at New York magazines. And I, I will say that there was a spirit at Philly Mag that did that did not exist in the other places that I had seen, or I, I hadn't felt it there anyway. Um, just as an intern, you feel it, you know, like, so I just felt like, wow, this is a place. In fact, it, it actually felt to me like the same spirit of my college magazine, which I was completely devoted to, you know, just a place where everybody was just having a good time and enjoying themselves and wanting just wanting to do their best work. And so I was like, I want to be here. You know, I just, and, and so I, so I did, I just didn't leave. (laughs) (laughs) You mean from your internship, you just said, I'm going to find a way to to hang on here? Like graduation day came and went and I was still at Philly Mag Uh (laughs) and like doing my unpaid internship, like stealing CDs from like the, the person I was doing an internship for, Stephen Freed, I would uh, not steal. He would give me CDs that he would get for free and I would sell them. (laughs) Like just to like to make money for food and and rent and stuff. I started waiting tables, um, and I also started. But this is like kind of the most remarkable part. I also started the summer after I graduated. I started working on my very first feature for the magazine. It was the very first professional piece I'd ever written, and it wound up being like a long form story. Which one was this? This one is actually not online. But I, I should really put it online. Um, ah, what is it? What was it about? It, it was about a um, a pen professor who had had an affair with a student and it turned into this kind of sadomasochistic affair 
that he wouldn't release her from. And um, he convinced her that she wanted to join, she wanted to become an academic in his field. And he convinced her that if she broke up with him, then he would ruin her. Uh-huh. And so um, she felt that she couldn't get away from him. And it was um, it's pretty messed up. And as it turns out, even more messed up as it turns out, um, this sort of thing had actually happened to him at a previous college. And then um, he'd been accused of it or been, it, it been, hadn't surfaced. He had actually been accused of that at a oh previous college. And rather than deal with it in any meaningful way, the college wrote him like this glowing recommendation and sent him on to Penn. Oh, that's nice. So, they, they were like, well, we'll unload this guy. Isn't that great? And it, he, it actually advanced his career. He went to like a better, you know, a better university. So the article was about that. And it was kind of amazing to me. Like it was my first experience writing a story like this, you mm-hmm. know, a really intensive story um, that was investigative in nature. It was narrative. It really got into their lives and tried to capture their experiences. And I was just so amazed at kind of like... Um, the access that I was able to get, mm-hmm. you know, that I was able to penetrate their lives and 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 really expose all this stuff. And um, when I handed it in, my editors were like completely blown away. <laughs> they probably just couldn't believe that it was like, I mean, I was 22, you know, yeah. like they probably couldn't believe I, it was written in like full sentences and in English, you know. No, I, I, when I was 22, I couldn't have done... I mean, the, the reporting, I think. I mean, the writing, maybe you could sit down and piece together, although structuring it, I think, is a really hard thing to learn. I had a hard time with this, with the writing part. The reporting part, I actually got through okay, except for the part where I was like, oh, my God, like, why should these people tell me anything? Like, who am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it takes a certain, uh, you know, confidence to sort of walk in and, I mean, especially people who maybe don't want to talk to you, uh, as it sounds like there would be some people in that in that particular story where did that where did it come from in that story the only person that i had like a crisis of confidence over talking to him was when the professor talked with me mm-hmm. and he was sort of back into a corner because i had talked with everybody else and um i had felt a certain confidence in talking to the student involved because she was somebody who was near my age so i i guess i i kind of felt like we could just talk but but when it came to the professor, I, I was I felt a little shy about that because I I did feel a little bit like you know I was a person who had great respect for my professors, uh, and I felt this great kind of self doubt like oh who am I to challenge my professor you know, but all the, all that went away when we um we sat down um for we did this interview over lunch, and I and I leaned down to get the tape recorder out of my bag, and as I straightened up I saw that he was looking right down my blouse. <laughs> So after that, I was like, I was not nervous at all. I was like, all right, I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. Fuck <laughs> yeah. this guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was that, in the, that wasn't in the piece, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it, it informed the piece, as they say. Did it, what happened to him? Did he, did I have he no get, idea. I, but did I, he get fired from the university at least? He left the university. Um, the student wound up suing the university, and uh-huh. they, they reached some kind of settlement. And um, the professor left the university... And he's probably, as somebody said to me recently, like he's probably like at Harvard now. Yeah, you, you probably know? got to bump up to the, like, the Oxford or something exactly. to be a, a distinguished professor. Well, this actually, so this this relates to going through all these pieces. You have so many pieces that I like uh, that we can't talk about them all because we'll be here for several hours. Um, but are they kind of sort of, I found them dividing up along sort of two lines. And you tell me if you think of them this way. You seem to write a lot of pieces about 
uh, people who are sort of shape-shifting in their identity. So there's sort of some con artists and there's some people doing things online uh, where they're sort of adopting a new identity online and maybe getting in trouble for that. Um, and then there's a whole other category that's more about sort of uh, vulnerable or less powerful people being exploited or abused in some way and sort of either how they get out of it or how they never get out of it. And it sounds like from the very beginning, I mean, that's that kind of story. Basically, it's someone who's in a lesser power position. Do you feel like you had ideas about what you wanted to write about when you started or you just gravitated towards certain types of pieces? Also, feel free to tell me if those aren't the two types of pieces you think you're right. No, I I think you totally nailed it. I, I actually never thought of it that way. I mean, I definitely didn't go into this with any clear idea of the kinds of things I wanted to write about. I just wanted to write like great stories and it's only over the years it's weird like looking back on my body of work that I realized that there are certain things that I'm definitely drawn to like I have a story that's out now it's called the entrapment of Jesse Snodgrass yeah and a friend of mine said to me like oh this is I I looked at this and it's like this is so like a Sabrina story it's got all the Sabrina elements and I wanted to be like really what are those elements tell me I I don't really know (laughs) but but I do think that I'm probably drawn to stories about people who either do bad things or people who like bad things have been done to them and how that affected them, like for the like why people do bad things, what their motivations were, and and you know especially people who like deceive other people. That I think that really fascinates me. And then on the other end, I, I'm really interested in like the repercussions of all those bad things. You know what happens to people when bad things happen to them. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk about this Jesse Snodgrass story, even though we're sort of we're jumping radically in time from yes we just, <laughs> from back. We'll, we'll we go literally back. just jumped 20 years. That's fine. We'll go back. We could we could jump wherever we want. Um, but that story is that in this week's. The, it is. They call it week's issue. What yes, the, the latest the, the current issue, issue, current issue yes. um, of Rolling Stone. And that seemed like a classic, like category two Sabrina story, which was that not only the 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 kid's vulnerable because he has Aspergers and he's basically sort of like entrapped by undercover police officer at his high school into selling drugs and then getting arrested for it. I'm probably this is not the best summary of the story, but but also like I'm curious how you find stories like that because. There are lots of, unfortunately, many, many stories of people being victimized in all sorts of ways. But you seem to find stories that have a sort of element to them that you get partway through. And then you, I kept saying to myself, like, I can't believe this also happened to this person. Or I can't believe that it went this far. Like, this had to stop at a certain point. And I'm, let's just to take that as an example, because it's your latest. How did you come upon that story? And how do you decide that it's rich enough for you to you know, spend the time pursuing it? Well, that story is a little unusual in this regard in, in that, like, I, um, that one was actually assigned to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, my editors do know me very well at yeah. this point and, like, what my interests are. And so they saw that this was a story that I'd be interested in. But um, in terms of, like, it is true that I, I think that my stories tend to have characters where, like, truly kind of incredible, like, really extraordinary things happen to them. Yeah. And the stories take amazing twists and turns. And um, I don't always know that going in, you know. Um, I think that I have a sense of, like, the broader contours of the story going in. And there's always, like, a light bulb that goes on over my head where I'm just like, yes, this has something. This has it. You know, whatever the, that thing is. There are so many, there are so many things that, you, that I feel like you need in order to create a narrative that's, like, incredibly compelling. It, it's not the same thing as you need 
you know, people call me all the time and say like, oh, I've got a great story for you. I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah. I've got a great story. And it's like, yeah, it's a great story to tell at a bar. And they think they know your work too. So they, they're thinking, oh yeah, this is like that other one you did. Right. But like, there's so many different elements that need to go into it. And I'm not even sure what some of those elements are. I just know, I just know when I see it, like there's something, there's something there. And I know that there's something deeper. And it's often not until I'm kind of deeper into the reporting um, do I find out what those things are. Uh-huh. But very often, um, I'll start off the story, um, so I'll have that, okay, this this sounds like, it feels like there's something there. Let me explore that a little bit. I'll call the people up. We'll sit on the phone, and I'll ask them for sort of like the, the general. We do almost like, I guess you call it like a pre-interview, you know, where I'll say like, you know, let's talk about your story. And like, you say like, this is off off the record or this is do you say like let's just talk about this before this is not for publication or do you go ahead and say like let's jump into this no we just jump right in Uh because um most of the time it turns into a story yeah knock on poor micah (laughs) um but when they tell me the broad outlines of the story like that's where and that usually takes a long time because people don't know how to tell their own stories you know they jump backwards and forwards in time it takes a while to kind of Much tease as we've out done here. Right, exactly. and um which, which is fine you know people don't tell stories like in a in a logical way they tell it in sort of an intuitive way something will remind them of something else and you know and often people don't even know the important aspects of their own stories um one like incredibly glaring example of that was um, when I did a story called The Girl Who Played With Fire. Mm-hmm. It was about this internet sensation named Kiki Cannibal. And I had initially approached her because I was interested in doing this kind of... I hadn't really figured out what the story was yet, but it was going to be about cyber-stalking. So I had I had gotten her name through like a cyber-stalking like, survivor's advocate and among other people as mm-hmm. well. So I was going to kind of pre-interview them all and see what their deal was. And Kiki started telling me this story of her harassment online. She explained to me, like, you know, we were just, I was just trying to get her story in a nutshell, you know, and she was trying to explain to me, like, just how bad her harassment got. She was, like, explaining that she became this sort of internet superstar, and then it all turned on her, and mm-hmm. people were really, like, they were stalking her, and it was really awful. And then she said, as an aside, well, I wouldn't want this to be in the story, but, like, I wound up being stalked by this pedophile who, like, raped me, and, um, and later he, like, threw himself off a parking garage and killed himself. But that I don't want that in the story, obviously, you know. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, well, that is the story. You know, like, you are the story. That, yeah. Like, what? What? Was she the first one you talked to of the of the group of people you were going to pre-interview? Yes, thank goodness. I called all the rest of them. I was like, you know what? Our interviews are off. No, thank you. Thanks so much for volunteering, but maybe some other time. Yeah, when I read that story, I I actually thought, like, you must have known going in. I mean, obviously, when you started the story after that point, you knew. But you must have found her because of that incident, because that incident formed sort of the central, most disturbing aspect of her story is that it sort of became – it wasn't just cyberstalking. It was sort of like real life. Yes. She had this real life interaction with this guy. Yes. And then it became kind of interesting because then I – it became a process of convincing Kiki and her parents that this wasn't this – no, was, this was no longer a story about – Cyber stalking. This was a story about Kiki that was going to take us to places that they hadn't expected originally, and they were going to have to trust me um, in terms of where we were going with that, and they did, which was great. 
Hey, it's your other host, Aaron Lammer, with a quick word from our sponsor, PillPack. Uh, I heard about PillPack for a few weeks ago, and it's, it's a pretty cool idea. Uh, if you've ever seen someone struggling to open a daily pill dispenser thing, or you've ever waited in a long line at the pharmacy, uh, you know that there's probably a better way to handle that, and that way is PillPack. PillPack will mail you your prescriptions and your vitamins in these cool little packets. They're quite easy to tear open. They're great for travel. They come in a roll, and uh, you can just get them sent to your house and never worry about it again. Um, And if anything goes wrong, they've got excellent customer service. So uh, this seems to me like the simple and uh, efficient way to handle your medications. If you or someone you love uh, does take multiple medications, I really recommend you check them out at pillpack.com slash longform. If you go to that address, which is again, pillpack.com slash longform, and you're a longform listener, you'll get a free month and you'll help support this show. So thanks to PillPack. Here's Evan and Sabrina Rubin Erdley. And in the end, did you did you feel like they, when the story came out, that they felt like that faith was rewarded in, in the piece? I think so. I think they were very, I mean, I think that they were happy with the end result, you know. I think that they, they felt like it faithfully told her story. I think that they were okay with the fact that it wasn't always, um, you know, it wasn't always kind, but they seemed okay with it because it was ultimately like the the general feeling I had for them was one of great sympathy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I really, really felt for them. I don't think that they did everything right, you know, as parents or that, you know, Kiki did in terms of like, you know, posting herself on the internet all the time and not realizing that there might be boundaries that she might want to draw for her for herself or whatever. But, but ultimately, like the takeaway from the story is like, she didn't deserve any of this, you know, any of the things that happened to her. And I think it was really important for her to feel like her story was out there and that it had been told. So I, I do think that they were really that they were really happy. We had also there were a couple of guidelines, like they they had agreed to allow me to explore things that they had initially been really uncomfortable with. Like, for example, you know, all this stuff about, you know, the the pedophile and his suicide and yeah. rape and all that stuff. Um, but we had also made an agreement that there were a couple things that I would leave out. And they were more minor details, but it was very important to them. And I honored those promises. And I, I, I always honor promises. So um, so I think they feel really good about, about the story as a whole. And just to get into the specifics of that, do you have sort of like uh, your tricks is the wrong word, but sort of you know, approaches that you use when you really run into people like that who say, you know, no, no, I don't want, I don't want to tell that full story. And you know, that's the key part of the story or besides just saying you have to trust me or do you point to your other work or do you, ha- do you have like a, a literal like sort of approach or you just feel it out? No, I, I have a certain approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a situation like that, cause I, I do deal with a lot of people who have been really traumatized and been through really traumatizing situations and, and they, they feel a little bit like, you know, they might feel embarrassed or shy and with good reason, you know, f- coming forward with these kinds of details. And what I say to them is, um, I guess I appeal to their altruism. And I say, like, you know, you had such an extraordinary experience, but, you know, other people are having experiences like this, too. They're just not talking about it. And they think that they're as alone as you thought you were at that mm. time. And there are other people who are going to have these experiences as well. And 
you know, you have this opportunity to be a voice that can reach out to these people and explain to people like what it was like for you and to humanize this situation. And it's just, it's, you know, and I just impress upon them how important it is to get into these kinds of details to really make it real. Because otherwise, like, I mean, if we're going to go there, we have to, we really have to go there. Yeah, I mean, that seemed uh, true of this story. I think it's from last year, the story about rape in the military. I mean, that's a story that's been in the news a lot. And there's documentary that's nominated for Academy Award. And But then when I sat down to read it, I got to a point where I thought, okay, this sounds like a story I've heard before. And then it sort of like broke through that to a point where I, th- I thought, I just can't believe this is happening to this person. And that woman, the main character of that story had seemed like had left the military, not ever won her case. How did you find that woman? How did you find her case? All those cases were so great. I found all of those cases through a lawsuit. Two, actually, there were three separate lawsuits that had been filed against high-ranking people in the Department of Defense that was accusing them of allowing this culture of rape and impunity to exist in the military. And it was on behalf of, I want to say, 55 service men and women. And um, so I I got these lawsuits. And I had been thinking for a long time about how to write about sexual assault in the military. But it just seemed like it was such a huge topic, you know. And um, how do you find a way in? So when I read about these lawsuits, I was like, there it is. <laughs> you know, like, so I, I got the lawsuits. And um, they talked about... Just in brief, you know, the complaints had sort of a capsule summary of each person's experience, Uh um, calling them by their initials or or whatever. So I went through, I actually start a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but a number of my stories have started like this, going through lawsuits and um, going through the complainants and then calling the lawyer and saying, I'd like this one and that one and that one (laughs) and that one and that one. And um, it's like picking them out of a catalog, you know, and... um, and like, the lawyers will kind of broker a initial conversation with the complainant. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes they're willing, sometimes they're not. In fact, um, Rebecca Bloomer, she was, I mean, gosh, she just had such an amazing story to tell. But she was also, she was almost not my main character. She was not my initial choice for the, the main character. The main character, when I initially called her, we totally hit it off. We totally got along. She totally wanted to do it. But it turns out she was actually so traumatized by the whole experience that she really wasn't sure that she could go through with it Mm -hmm. and I was like it's okay like I did not press her to move forward with it both because you know I'm not here to inflict any additional emotional trauma on anybody I feel like I want to do people as little harm as possible while I'm writing these kinds of stories Um, but also you know I'll say for selfish reasons like I've had stories of of people who are really traumatized in which, like, I mean, they drop out because they're just so traumatized. And then you're halfway through, like, working on this story, and then you're just like, fuck. So I actually wound up using her just in a very, very small way. You know, in in that story, it wound up being Rebecca Bloomer's story was kind of the backbone of the story. And then I deviated to sort of, like, feather in lots of other people's experiences. So she did show up in that story. And I just, I was just so grateful to all the people who were just so generous to allow me to use their stories and, you know, to, to, to use their names. I was just, you know, I'm, I'm continually blown away, frankly. You know, yeah, those are all, they're all real names. Yeah, they're all real names. Yeah, and in all, in all my stories. Yeah. I mean, they're all willing to tell their stories, you know, with their, with their real, you know, with their real names. And it's like the totally 
unvarnished truth. And I'm often just like in awe of that, you know, of like the courage that it takes and the leap of faith that they've taken to trust me like a stranger, you know, to go ahead and do that. And I, I feel like the weight of that responsibility for sure. And and what about just the trauma of, of just actually having these people relive these things sort of with you? There's so many cases in that, in that piece alone. And you've done a number of pieces that uh, were about rape or domestic abuse or, you know, where you're having this person sort of like tell you their story and going through it detail by detail. But how does that affect you? I mean, not that I'm saying that's the most important thing, but I'm yeah, no, obviously I, their story is the most important thing, but I'm curious how. I mean, I'm glad you're bringing it up because I feel like this is something that like journalists don't really talk about this stuff and we probably should. Like I actually, I've come to realize that this stuff affects me tremendously and it's only recently that I've come up with like coping skills to deal with that. Hmm. You know, because I mean, like, you know, we're so tough and, you know, like we can deal with anything. And I do have this feeling like, oh, well, you know, people have told me incredible things. Like, I, you know, surely I can handle one more. But I do think that I, I sort of reached a point where, and I know what the point was, it was um, when I wrote that, um, the story about the gay teen suicides, yeah. it was called um, School of Hate or online, it was called One Town's War on Gay Teens. That, for me, was a really significant story in that I totally absorbed that pain during the writing process. During the reporting process, I feel like I can keep a kind of clinical distance. You know, like when you're doing an interview, you're kind of standing outside the interview at the same time as you're conducting it. Like there's so much going on. You're having so many thoughts. You're like, you know, I mean, you're still like, thinking and feeling you know you're still a person and stuff but you know you're you're always like thinking ahead like you know like scouring everything that they said for like thing you know future questions you're going to mm-hmm. be asking and you know whatever and i find that you know when i when i write down when when i sit down to write all that distance collapses and you know i'm alone with the material and the way that i try to write in this kind of really immersive way you know i have no choice but to like really confront you know, I, I want to present the story from the point of view of the person who was living it. And that does require, you know, feeling it to the best of my ability. And that story involved nine teen suicides. And um, I had never, like, encountered so much emotional pain, so much grief in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. It was like I had these interviews stacked like one after another after another, like suicidal teenagers and grieving mothers and, you know, like these bereaved teachers. And it was like, it was just horrible, you know? Yeah, the parental interviews alone seem like that's up there at the top of the scale of emotionally difficult interviews to oh, do. I mean, there's this there's this part of the transcript that I actually remember so well. Um, it's weird. Whenever I think about this part of the transcript, I actually like it takes me back to that time. It's like I just remember this mother. It was actually on the it was on the phone. I just remember this mother's tone of voice so so well when she was describing like like when she found her daughter dead. And it, you know, it still, it just affects me so much. And after the story came out, I, um, I found that I wasn't feeling well. Mm -hmm. And I actually didn't really get out of bed for about a month. And 
that is really unusual for me. <laughs> you know, like I'm a real like, you know, go get them kind of person. And I'm usually really kind of like cheerful and stuff. And I was yeah. like, what's wrong with me? And I was in such deep denial that I actually thought like something else must, might have been, it must have been something else. You know, I, I must have been, de- if I was depressed, I must have been depressed about something else, you know. Huh. Um and especially because it seems so discordant with what, what was actually going on in my life in terms of that story, because the story was blowing up. I mean, this is the only story of mine that ever actually legitimately like went viral. Yeah. It, it was like huge. And I was getting these incredible emails from like these incredibly emotional teenagers. And I mean, the outpouring of response was just amazing. And Aziz Ansari called me and wanted to like put together, we put together like a comedy benefit for yeah. an LBGT community, like a community center in, in Anoka, Minnesota. And so like these amazing things were happening. So like, why was I feeling so shitty? You know, it just didn't make any sense to me. And to the extent that I did admit to myself that maybe I was feeling like depressed because of the story itself, that I was feeling some kind of trauma or secondary trauma, I was kind of like disgusted with myself because I was like, this is not my pain. You know, I can't like, how dare I own this pain? This is not my pain, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, eventually it wore off time just sort of took care of that actually about, you know, maybe a month or so later, like my editor called is like, time to get on a new story you know like let's let's get moving and and I did and you know one foot in front of the other you know I you know I just kind of moved on but it wasn't until some months later I actually gave a talk for um the Columbia um journalism schools dart center they did a panel Uh about like writing about suicide and this question came up about like how do you guys do it like was it really hard for you emotionally and I started talking about exactly this and it was the first time I told anybody I never even told like my husband and afterwards, the person who, like, ran the panel, he, like, came over to me and he was like, are you okay? <laughs> and it was just weird because just to be asked that because I had never, nobody had ever asked me that question. Yeah. I had never even thought to ask myself that question. Like, am I okay? Well, or even worse to think, like, it's not all right for me to even consider that. That's not, these other people are the people who suffer. I'm not the person who suffers just from having listened to them. And Like, like I'm not the one who's hurting. They're the one who's hurting, you know? But so did you develop like a new new approaches and a new strategy to sort of deal with that? Because it's not like you've stopped doing uh, difficult stories since then. I mean, this rape in the military story is since that story. That's true. No, I um, one thing that I've done, I've actually I've made a few changes. They're actually going to sound incredibly small and mundane, but they they make a huge um, difference. I think that I. I um I get up from my desk more often. <laughs> hmm. Like I I have this tendency to really like lock in to a story and I will sit for like 8 hours in front of my desk. This partly has to do with I think being a working mom and just needing to like wring as much um productivity out of every minute of the day. But I need to recognize that like you need to get up and take a walk every so often and take a step away, not just from your desk, but like from your work a little bit and like giving yourself that little bit of breathing room and reminding yourself that like you have your own life and you have your own thing. And so engaging with my own life in small ways has been incredibly helpful. You know, doing things like spending time with my family, exercising is probably very helpful. I plan to put that on the list eventually. <laughs> We're all planning to exercise. More. <laughs> uh, I actually, I actually meditate for 10 minutes a day mm-hmm. and, and I find that very helpful as well. So, um, so just little, little things like that. I've found are um, 
they've they've been helpful so far. Do you try to uh, shake up the stories at all to sort of after you've done one that's extremely serious to try to find one that's a little more fun or a little I mean the con con artist stories aren't fun in the same way but they, sometimes they are a little bit fun. Yeah, they they are. I mean, I've never intentionally done that, but I should probably do more of that mm-hmm. because I do feel like a certain lightness. Like for example, I this this past year um I did like a couple of incredibly intense stories one after another. I did the the rape in the military story and then I did it's called the poorest rich kids in the world. That is a crazy story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was like a really wrenching story. And so after I finished that, the magazine actually put me on a story about a six-year-old transgender child called About a Girl. And now this Jesse Snodgrass story. So those two stories in a row, like even though they are about, you know, sort of like people who have been through really emotional experiences and stuff, in Jesse's case, really traumatic experience, like it, it's it's different and it's actually given me a real breather um, because for me, both of those stories were actually about very loving and supportive families. Mm-hmm. And as an added perk, like no one died. <laughs> like, uh, you know, everyone lives to tell the tale. So to me, those were like feel good stories. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I mean that Jesse Snodgrass story. I mean his his family really his parents fight for him and obviously like that that story is enraging for a lot of reasons and it's upsetting for a lot of reasons. But to me, when I wrote it, I was actually almost a little surprised at how emotional and how like outraged people's responses are. I almost lost sight of that while I was writing it because I was really thinking of it more like, wow, these parents are amazing. You know, this family is just amazing. So that that leads me to another question that I was curious on a number of these types of stories. Are you fueled at all by a sense of outrage and sort of in combination with that, do you want the stories to have like a wider impact on policy or on, you know, do you feel there's sort of like an activist element to it? Not that they're activist stories, they're stories. I mean, that story seemed very outrage inducing, but it sounds like you, that wasn't necessarily your reason for wanting to do it. Not really. I mean, I mean, I mean, I love stories that shine, that open a window into like, larger issues that like make you think and certainly you know that like I mean issues of like social justice and stuff interest me a lot but I would definitely not say that I was motivated I'm ever motivated by outrage even as I am outraged by things you know I think I'm actually motivated by um, curiosity like when these bad things happen when institutions go bad you know when police departments set up sting operations on autistic children or when you know women are systematically raped in the military or for that matter when like boys are systematically raped in the catholic church like how did that happen you know how did that make like how does that whole system come into being mm-hmm. because my take on pe- people humanity <laughs> is that like i think that people are by their nature i think that they're they're good and want to act rightly so i'm very interested in why people do these things that result in really bad actions Mm -hmm. and i i think that my lack of outrage actually is one of the things that probably helps me in my reporting because i really am propelled by this pure curiosity and i think that that just come across in my interviews with people where i just want to know like Really, how and why, and why do you think that, and where did that come from? Well, that that takes me back. I wanted to go back and talk about that story about those those kids, the poorest little rich kids in the world, because I said that's a crazy story, which is which is true, but it also is one of these stories that you know, done one way, it can. I mean, it is just like a catalog of like the worst parenting and, and the most excess, and just like and like true villains, really, as parents in a way. But the, it could be done just as that. 
but it also I feel like there's a layer of empathy in there that you know like they're also addicts and then the fact that you got to the kids and you, you sort of like remind us even at the very beginning like these are real children that continue to exist they're not like just a sort of portrait of something you read about somewhere and I'm I, I'm wondering if the, first just how that story come about I'm glad that that's the way that you read it. It came about because um, the family reached out to me, which I would say is probably a, a pretty singular experience because I don't think that I've ever done a story where somebody actually reached out to me. Yeah, mostly are, when someone wants you to do a story, it's like a PR-related situation. Exactly. Well, I actually, I'm, I, I must say I deal very little with PR people, but I do deal a lot with just like regular people who call me up. I'm a person who like, if my phone rings, I always pick it up. And like my phone number is right there on my website and all kinds of people call me and want to tell me their kooky stories. And this was one of the kookier ones. So when this, when this guy called me, he was like a friend of the family calling on their behalf. I was just like, okay, dude, <laughs> like, this is just too weird, you know, like it just sounds like not to be believed. So I didn't say go away, but I did say, um, look, I'm really busy. I'm working on this big story. I was working on the military sexual assault story. So I was like, you know what? I'm really busy. Why don't you get in touch with me in a couple of months, you know? And usually that's enough to make people go away. But he came right back. And um, why you? I still don't know the answer to that question. Huh. He kind of creeped me out when he told me that the family had chosen me. I had to be the one to tell the story. And he said that it had something to do with my professional, you know, writing, but it also had something to do with my personal background. What did they know about your personal background? Yeah, I know. The, they, fir- the first thing I thought is like, they have like a private investigator on me or something? Like, what? what is he talking about? Everything about this story was unusual. This is seriously the story behind this story. I don't think I could actually tell you the whole story behind the story, but like we wouldn't have enough time, first of all, but like that would make a story unto itself. Yeah. And if I weren't the kind of person who like, I very much try to, in my writing, I try to like remove myself as much as possible from my stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like this, this sense of almost like this invisible narrator. If I wasn't that kind of writer, it would have been so not easy, but it would have been such a different and very kind of entertaining and weird story to write it as I reported it. It was very much like a Steve Larson kind of book. Like, it, like it was, it was just bizarre. It was, it, was there a cloak and dagger in terms of meeting them? It took a while for me to meet them because I actually put the brakes on the whole thing. They were in a big hurry to meet me, but I was like, he was telling me all these crazy stories about them, and I was like. Before we go any further, like, I need to see some evidence. Like, all the stuff that you're telling me is just crazy. Like, can you send me something, you know? So he sent me a single document. And I read this document, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, it's true. Like, some of the stuff that he's saying is actually true. Was it a court document? It was. Uh-huh. It was. a lot of the, There was a lot of paperwork that was generated by this case. There was a 10-year legal battle that was involved in this case. And so um, in addition to all of the other stuff, like the police reports that I found and, um, and other things. So after I read this document, I was just like, okay, like, show me everything. Like, I need to know everything. And I, I wanted to be very... Um, careful before I met these kids because I was definitely aware that I was about to meet two very like emotionally disturbed possibly teenagers if even one fifth one tenth of the stories that they about them were true they would be seems like they would be completely emotionally traumatized absolutely absolutely so I was like I have to take so much care with these with these kids and um 
I want to be like as ethical as possible with the way that I handle them. So the first thing I needed to do was I wanted to, I can't remember the sequence of events now. I definitely did a couple of things. One was that I looked at all the documents that they would send me, you know, so like just so that I could get a sense of like the whole scope of their story and because it was very complicated. Mm-hmm. And it was like just very complicated. And it turned out to be much more complicated even than than they had presented it. But just enough so that I could make sense of, of what they were talking about. There were so many names that they were throwing at me, so many events. And, you know, what we were saying before about the, how nobody, people don't tell a story in a linear way. You know, so like when this family friend was trying to tell me something, he'd be like going backwards and forwards, like, you know, 20 years in time then 40 years in time and then you know so I um I went through all these documents and then I I spoke to their mother on the phone made sure that I had her consent then I spoke to them on the phone made sure that you know like they were fully on board they understood what it meant to be in a magazine you know they understood like the kinds of things that I wanted to ask them about and only then like when I was like really satisfied about all these things then only then did I fly out there to meet them but by then you know I had realized that the story was actually so much bigger. I couldn't have written the story like 10 years ago or hmm. 20 years ago. Like just like the way that I've kind of developed as a person. I mean, when you talk about the the empathy factor, it would have been a perfect story on its own. Just the story of these traumatized kids who were raised by their, you know, billionaire father, but they were like they were the children of drug addicts and they were kept as these prisoners and they're Basement. I think and, literally you know. prisoners yeah. were kept behind bars yeah. as infants. <laughs> yes, they were like dead bolted into their bedrooms and forced to like uh, relieve themselves in the corner and they weren't fed and they didn't go to school. I mean, they were like these feral children. And um, that would have been enough, you know? Yeah. But um, the more I found out about their story and going through all their records and their medical records and everything like that, like all I could keep thinking was like, who was this father? You know, like, I just need to know more about him. Because, I mean, clearly, like, he was there for all of this time. And he was, like, kind of res- responsible for their negligence and their abuse. But, like, who like who was this guy? What was his motivation? You know? I don't operate from the perspective that, like, he was necessarily a bad man. I mean, he certainly was responsible for bad acts. But I, I didn't necessarily assume that he was, like, some, you know, evil person i just wanted to know like where where did he come from like mm-hmm. what made him think that this was an okay way to live so that's what led me to find out more about their father walker inman junior the nephew of doris duke which in turn led me to learn about doris duke and the duke family and i came to discover that this was like this epic of sort of generational pain that was just like handed down and dysfunction that was handed down from generation to generation and like magnified with each generation. The money didn't assuage any of the problems that grew out of this family. It just sort of like blew it up into this, the situation that, that ended up with these twins. Exactly. And so like the more I learned about Walker and Walker, of course, turned out to be this like larger than life character where like in every scene, he's like blowing something up or shooting something. He's a pyromaniac. You know, he um, he's, you know, a drug addict. He's like he thinks of himself as being like this outlaw cowboy guy. And everybody kind of laughs at his antics because he's the richest guy in the room. So he can just do whatever he wants. (laughs) There was some line in there where he. He like bought a racetrack or something, and then he just went in when it was empty and just shot it up with a 
machine gun for yep. no no reason. Then it just moves on. Then yes. it just went on to something else. Yes. It was so hard to like squeeze. There were so many details in this story that, um, I mean, it was just like a treasure trove. Like, you know, when, when you when you write a story, you have to shuck so much material. You just have to like cut it all out and just use your A material. And I really feel like for this story, I just had to like, I had to scrap the A material and just use like the A plus material, <laughs> you know, there was this one like little mini scene that, that, um, that I cut. I just squeezed it in there like as tight as I could. It was, it was like, a, it did like two lines and it was a scene of Doris Duke, um, and Walker, her, her nephew sitting on the floor of her pen, like fifth Avenue penthouse apartment, smoking pot together. And like reminiscing about their past when he used to like, as a boy, like throw grenades into her (laughs) pool. And um, it was cut for space. And it's like, in what story does that, does does Doris Duke smoking pot get cut from the story? Yeah, that would be your lead in most stories. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. In in the end, it actually wound up, like I wound up structuring the story much differently than I thought I was initially going to structure it because the more reporting that I did, the more I realized, I've never had a story like this before, really, where it, it emerged that um, everybody in the story was like an unreliable narrator. And I really couldn't trust anybody's um, recollection. And so I had to just go back to the documents, which fortunately, like my stack of documents was like as tall as me. And I was like, I'm going to use the documents as like the skeleton of the story. Mm-hmm. And did they get what they wanted out of it by contacting you? They didn't get what they wanted. They what turns out what they wanted was um, it was actually something that the the mother wanted. I mean, the kids were disappointed, I think, in part because they want to be seen as fighters and survivors. And instead, they felt that they came across as victims, you know, because the article dwelled so much on the horrors of and on the abuses and not as much on their they're fighting back mm-hmm. in this legal battle that they now have with with J.P. Morgan, which is the trustees to their um, trust fund. Mm. Their mother was very disappointed because her, really her reason for wanting to reach out to me was because um, she wanted me to make her look really good because, again, this is, you know, they're they're embroiled in this battle over the kids' money, and um, that's going to have some serious consequences for their financial future. And I think that she wanted me to focus on that financial stuff and to make her, the biological mother, look as good as possible, which I did not she had troubles she, too. She has some issues. <laughs> I wasn't nearly as harsh on her as I could have been. Huh. Now we're going to jump back in time a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about Rolling Stone uh, in general. But first I want to know, how did you go from working at Philadelphia Magazine? So you became a staff writer at Philadelphia Magazine. And I'm always curious like how that transition happens to starting to write for Rolling Stone. Was it they saw a piece of yours? Was it you went to them with a pitch? How did that take place? It actually, between Philly Mag and Rolling Stone... There was actually a period of like six years where I left Philly Mag to freelance. Mm -hmm. And I wound up freelancing mostly for women's magazines. That's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Yes. Yes, Yes. go ahead. Um, Which was interesting because it was not really part of my plan. I I mean, looking back, I I enjoyed my time writing for women's magazines and um, I got a lot out of it. But it it was a confusing time for me because... You know, I left the staff at Philly Mag. I loved it there. It was so hard to leave. It was like my home. But I had seen so many of my friends and colleagues leave the magazine and kind of go on to greener pastures. And by then, I was already doing some freelancing and stuff. So I was like, okay, so this is the next step for me. And then, like, a strange thing happened, which was that all of my male peers had all been kind of snapped up by, like, 
men's magazines and um, general interest magazines. And um, those magazines could give a shit about me. They were not interested at all. At the time, we were all kind of fetishizing men's magazines, probably because, I mean, it was a very male staff, and, like, this, this were, these were the things that we were reading. And plus, like, you know, look, men's magazines is, they were publishing the kinds of stuff that I was doing and wanted to do. But um, it was just this strange kind of dichotomy where it's like, these magazines just, like, they they just acted like I, I didn't exist. And um, how did that How did that happen? Like... Was it like you you pitch them and you don't hear anything back and your colleague, male colleague pitches them and they, they get a response? Was it that stark? Yeah, it was. Wow. It was. And um, it actually took me a long time to admit that that was going on, that there was some kind of like sexism that might have been keeping me back, I guess. Um, because, um, wow, there's like a lot, a lot of denial going on in this, um, in this conversation. <laughs> I guess it, I guess I use it when it's convenient for me. But all but, of which you've gotten through so far. So, right. I mean, I, I think that like, I'm actually a very optimistic person. I'm like a realistic optimist, I think. And it didn't fit with my optimism about my own prospects and my own career that there could be an obstacle in my way that I could not remove. So that you were writing big, I mean, you were writing big stories for Philadelphia. I went back and read these stories. I mean, these are big, powerful stories, some of which are very long. You like joined a cult for a story. Yes. You wrote a story about an unsolved murder of a little boy from 50 years ago. Like these are yeah. stories that set should set you up to write for any magazine. When I was 24, I had a story that was nominated for my, my first National Magazine Award. And... It put me on the national radar screen in that all these women's magazines contacted me about writing for them, which I just thought was, I mean, I was so flattered, of course, you know, but I just thought it was so strange because I'd never read women's magazines before. I didn't see myself in their pages. I didn't write that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the story that I was nominated for was about a gynecologist who was molesting his patients. And um, he was able to get away with it for a really long time because he would move across state lines anytime there was a complaint. Mm -hmm. And the medical record-keeping system at the time wouldn't keep up with him. Um, So it was an investigation as to, like, how all that happened and the lapses in the system that that allowed it to happen. So I guess people read that story and they were like, oh, that's a chick story, you know. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as being, like, an important story about, you know, it was an investigative story about public health. But that was my introduction to how, like, gendered the the field was. And so when I left Philadelphia Magazine, you know, the men's magazines were like, who are you? And the women's magazines were like, oh, we love you. We'll pay you money, you know. So I wound up writing mostly for women's magazines. And um, it was actually, it was a, a wonderful experience. I mean, I felt like I was writing sort of socially important stories for an audience that I loved. I mean, these were my people. And women's magazines audiences are so responsive. And um, I worked with such talented editors. Did you feel like the stories were different substantially than the ones you would have done? I mean, some of them, I mean, there's a story in Good Housekeeping that was about a woman who was a victim of abuse, like spousal abuse, for and tried to leave and tried to leave and kept coming back. I mean, that story would be at home, as far as I could tell, in any general interest, serious general interest magazine. Did you feel like you were you had to fit into some approach that they wanted or you were just, I'm going to do the work that I want to do and they actually wanted that work? 
It was a little bit of both. It was like I did the work that I wanted to do. I wrote about issues that were important to me. The domestic violence one was actually kind of a pet project of mine. And Mm -hmm. I give so much credit to Good Housekeeping for running that story. It was one of the most violent stories I've ever worked on. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. But I felt like these were stories that I was really passionately interested in. But when they appeared in the magazine, like, and the writing process and stuff, like, this was not my voice. And so I felt like I was accomplishing a lot. But there was part of me that was not being satisfied, Uh you know, that creative part, I guess. That said, I learned a lot of skills that I did bring forward. I mean, certainly I never could have written, I think, that sexual assault in the military story without my women's magazine training. And and in fact, I was actually told by a couple people at a couple different magazines that they tried to take on the sexual assault story, military sexual assault story, and they were just like defeated by it because it was just too big. They couldn't figure out how to put their arms around it. But when I was confronted with the story, I was like, oh, okay, I, I can do this story. I've done this. This is a women's magazine story, except like tougher and with more swear words. <laughs> <laughs> Predominantly because it's it's starting with an issue then you have to work your way into that issue. Yeah, I think of women's magazine stories as being primarily like topical, mm-hmm. but you pu- put a human face on mm-hmm. that topic. And so it it makes that very difficult to understand and relate to topic, like suddenly come alive and be really personal and relevant. And so then how how did you end up at Rolling Stone? Was That was actually a very deliberate choice on my part. I um, After I... Um, oh, there's one more thing I should probably say about women's magazines too, which is that... I I worked at women's magazines, I think, during a really important time, like during the right time in my life, which was that like I was having children during that time. I had uh-huh. my two kids then. And um, I had already gotten this message from kind of the male world that maybe for whatever reason I didn't belong. And um, then on top of that, to become a mother and to have your whole world turned upside down and your schedule turned upside down, your priorities and everything else... It was really nice to be in an environment where, I mean, Women's Magazine was working with all women. Not all of them had children, but they were all like, it's okay. You know, like, it's okay to, like, they were so great and accommodating. They knew that I was going to get my stories in. I'm, like, ridiculously sort of, like, diligent, (laughs) you know. And um, they were like, whatever schedules you need to work, work those schedules, you know, like, as long as you get it done. And um, that was so different from, like, the the attitudes that I was encountering from other sectors. And so it just, like, it was, I felt like it was just, like, a really important place to be during that time. But after the birth of my second child, I took, like, five months off. And I was just kind of like, okay, I, like, reassessed my career. And I was like, okay, I'm, re- I'm ready. Like, I'm ready for whatever comes next and what is that thing that's going to come next and up until now I've really just been in this kind of passive role taking on a lot of assignments that have been given to me you know and you know writing for a whole bunch of different magazines including I should say I shouldn't be so down on men's magazines including some men's magazines which were great experiences Mm -hmm. Um, but I just said to myself like where is the place that I want to write for that I want to see myself writing for I want to write for a magazine that I I actually read you know (laughs) first on the list was Rolling Stone it's actually the only magazine that I grew up reading, other than like the National Geographics that were at my grandparents' house. Yeah, everybody had the National Geographics. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I mean, Rolling Stone, like no joke, um, changed my life because um, when I was in college, I was actually pre-med. 
but an English major who, like, my subconscious already wanted to be a writer, but I just hadn't accepted it. My God, we're back to the denial again. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> the best would be if we get to the end and we realize something that you just now are discovering <laughs> that you're in denial about. We're going to figure that out. <laughs> but uh, I was devoting all my time to working for the my um, college magazine and just kind of, like, slogging through my pre-med courses and stuff. And um, my junior year, I won the Rolling Stone College c- competition. And I saw that. I was going to spring that on you. Yeah. See if you remembered it, but obviously it was I a for- that. formative experience. <laughs> it was. It was. That was that was like my my sign from the heavens that, you know, this was really the path that I should go on and I should like shuck this like conventional course that I was going to go on and I should take this totally radical new path with no guarantees and do it. So I was reminded of that like all these years later, I was like, wait a minute. What about Rolling Stone? Like the thing that started it all. So I um, I called a friend who knew somebody at Rolling Stone, and I came up with what I thought was like a you know a good idea for them, and I I actually called this guy on the phone, their managing editor at the time, John Dioso, who like I will forever be grateful for this like miraculous moment in time because. I call, not only did I call him on the phone, like I didn't send him an email. I called mm-hmm. him on the phone, and he picked up the phone. <laughs> it was probably an era where people picked up the phone more often than yeah. they do now. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's funny. It was only in 2007, which is not that long <laughs> ago, but you're absolutely right. So he picked up the phone, and I introduced myself, and I was like, I'd like to pitch a story to the magazine. And he's like, well, um, I'm not really the right person to do that, but what's your story idea? And I was like, oh. And I, I gave him like the 30-second pitch. And um, it wasn't the right idea for them, but he liked something about me because he passed me along to the person who ultimately be- became my editor there, Sean Woods. Oh, wow. But I'm, like, forever grateful because that conversation is, like, what launched, like, you know, the next, like, years of my career. And what was your first Rolling Stone piece? It was called The Fabulous Fraudulent Life of Jocelyn and Ed. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was about I mean, these identity thieves in Philadelphia. They're college students who uh, just ran amok. That's the uh, that's category one, as I define them. <laughs> yes. That and the, uh, and the Ivy League uh, Ivy League con artists. Yes, also, that's so right. Uh, that's right. Category one. I love con artists. I've, <laughs> I've written about them so much. It's like, I just, I can't get enough of them. Everyone is, is, is the same in some ways, but everyone is different. Like, they, they have their... There are modes that sort of pop up in each case. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's amazed me about these con artist stories is, is actually, in a sense, I mean, you're right, that so many of them are kind of the same, and they all kind of follow the same playbook, and yet some of them can be so different. So, like, there are two stories that I wrote where, like, the people are just such incredible polar opposites. Like, the girl who's the, at the centerpiece of, uh, who's the center of the girl who conned the Ivy League, her name is Esther Reed. she actually emerged as like one of the most sincere people I have ever met, which was not something I was expecting. And and no, she's not conning me into believing <laughs> yeah, that. She actually turned out to be just like a really damaged person who was just trying to create a new life for herself. And she's one of the few people who I've who I've actually stayed in touch with after I wrote the story about her. We remain like pen pals throughout her time in prison. Oh. She now like she lives in the Pacific Northwest and is living like a life that she had never <clears throat> imagined that she could have. It's just kind of like this normal life. I mean, she was a person who turned out to be like not a con artist, but somebody who was just like 
trying to leave this really dysfunctional past behind and also overcome with this crippling anxiety disorder. <laughs> so now she's living this life where, like, you know, she has she has a job, she has an apartment, she's dating. I mean, she's doing the kind of everyday things that she never thought that she'd be capable of of doing. Yeah, that that's one thing that makes that story different too. Is that usually they they never stop. Yes, and and a classic example of that is sort of I was going to say like the polar opposite of that is um, the ultimate con artist is this guy that I profiled for GQ named Steve Commissar, and it's a story called um, the Creep with the Golden Tongue, and that actually still stands as one of my favorite stories. It's hard to explain why really, but th- that was actually um, kind of a scary experience in a sense because. I wasn't scared of, of him. What what frightened me about him was the more that I got to know him, the more that I realized that he was challenging my basic idea that everybody is good because he's not good. He's like not even a person as I understand it. He's just a sociopath. He's he's the first like true sociopath that I ever encountered or knowingly encountered. And to come to realize that this person who I'd been spending time with like who's sort of charming and irritating and you know I kind of like make fun of him in the story and stuff or whatever but to come to realize that like he's really just an empty shell is is really horrifying and I remember when I wrote about that feeling like feeling really bad about it because because like you know and and I told my my editor at the time like can I really say these things about him because like you know I just, I always find the sweetness in people. My husband actually always tells me that I say, he says that I, I say that all women are beautiful and all people are sweet. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely written about some not sweet people. No, it's true. But, you know, e- that is so true. But, you know, even the not sweet people, like I, I always kind of find a sweetness in them. Like I sort of, I sort of have to because like that's their humanity and I need to find that humanity and to not find it was really shocking to me. Wow. Well, uh, I'm going to let you go, but there's one other question I want to ask you just because it came up in the news recently and I was thinking about it, but uh, in regards to Rolling Stone, but uh, I think Matt Taibbi was leaving was leaving to go to uh, this new venture and he said something about how in his like farewell letter that like Rolling Stone was like, it still felt like this entree into you tell people like, I'm here from Rolling Stone. They act differently. They they perceive you differently and they they, they open up to you or something they open their doors to you and i'm curious if you if you find that writing there if that is that is that true for you is that still true uh in this type type of stories that you do i mean i've been lucky in that throughout my career people have always opened up to me even when i worked for you know smaller publications and stuff but what i do find is that rolling stone has a lot of cachet your phone calls are returned so quickly I mean, I'm so spoiled. I forgot what it's like to not have your return, your, your phone calls returned really fast. And I think it does mean something. You know, when you tell somebody, you know, we're going to, you know, like we're going to give it the full Rolling Stone treatment. You don't even need to <laughs> elaborate beyond that. You know, or when you tell somebody that like we're going to take a great portrait of you, it's really exciting to be part of that. Well, I said that was going to be my last question, but I lied because I wanted to, I, I still wanted to just get back to you f- when you felt shut out by those magazines, do you feel now angry about that? Do you feel not shut out anymore? Like, what what is your perspective on that now, having, you know, made it into this this magazine that you wanted to, you know, was the top of your list? I don't feel angry. I mean, I don't. I I, I do and I don't actually. I don't feel angry because I feel like 
I am at the place where I wanted to be. And so there's no such thing as regret when like you get everything that you want in the end. And everything that I did, every stop along the way was useful and meaningful. And also I should say that now that I'm here, all those magazines that shut me out, they want me now. Of course. (laughs) So there is a certain sweetness in that. What I am angry about is that despite the fact that these other these other magazines weren't willing to take me, I was determined to get there anyway. And when I think about all of my female journalist friends and colleagues who fell off the path uh-huh. or took paths that they didn't prefer, writing for magazines that they, you know, settling for magazines that they maybe wouldn't have seen themselves writing for because they didn't have that, you know, um, propelling them forward. They didn't have that the optimism that I had or the denial that I have or whatever it is that <laughs> kept me moving forward. That makes me angry. Well, hopefully they will, uh, they'll see your work and they, they'll take that from seeing your, your work out there in these magazines. I will say that the industry has actually changed, I mean, in the last 20 years, in the last like 10 years, um, in terms of its receptiveness towards women. I mean, I definitely see there being a new demand for women and for ideas, story ideas having to do with women. I mean, never before really did you see story as many stories in general interests, or certainly in men's magazines, where women were the main character. You know, you're starting to see more of that, more, yeah. more, more stories that used to be categorized as women's interest simply because there was a woman's, uh, there was a, a woman in it. So, um, in 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 addition to, I think these places starting to be more more welcoming and realizing that like diversity in your newsrooms is a good thing. You know, it leads to bigger and better ideas, a better understanding of your world. So, I think everybody's benefiting from that. Well, let's leave it on an optimistic note then. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. This was a lot of fun. And I know you have big stories coming out, so we'll have you come back and talk about the other half of the stories that I wanted to talk about and whatever's new. All right. It's a deal. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts. My other co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Long Form. Uh, thanks to Sabrina Rubin Erdley for coming on the show. Uh, she's wonderful, and I hope you enjoyed that. And our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern is Sarah Button. Thanks to them both. And thanks to our sponsors this week, PillPack and Tiny Letter. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.